Well, good morning, Living Water, and Happy New Year to everyone. Well, we're glad to see you out this morning. Uh, why don't you uh, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14? I'm not going to read it right now. We're going to jump right into prayer, but you could be finding that in your text. We'll go to that in a few moments. Luke chapter 14. Let me pray. Let's bow. Heavenly Father, we come before you with bowed heads to symbolize the humbling of our hearts before you. We give you thanks for another opportunity to gather, to sing, to give, to serve, and to hear your word proclaimed to us. We ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts today through this earthen vessel. We pray that the name of your Son would be glorified, the Lord Jesus that you would cleanse us from any sin, any iniquity, any trespasses that we've committed. Transform us into the image of Christ. Our heart's desire, Lord, as was uttered today, is to bring glory to your great name. Keep us on a path to eternal life. We ask that you save those who are far from you. We ask these requests because you have placed us in union with your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in him that we ask these things. Amen. Hate your father. Hate your mother. Hate your spouse. Hate your siblings. Hate your children. As a matter of fact, hate your very life. And if you're unwilling to do these things, then you cannot be a disciple of Jesus. Strong words, striking words, contradictory words. Did not the Lord say, honor your father and mother? And did not Jesus himself say, love your neighbor as yourself and love your enemies? So, so what did Jesus mean by uttering such harsh sounding words? With these words, the Lord calls for something that every would-be disciple gives away willingly to others. We see it given in families. We see it given in work environments. We even see it in sports arenas. A few weeks ago, my uh, wife and I were invited by some close friends of ours to a Hershey Bears game, and we saw some church people there as well from Living Water, uh, some sitting next to us, some sitting close to us, some sitting across the stadium. And uh, we got a chance as we entered the giant arena, I noticed how many Hershey band fans there are because of just all the paraphernalia that just uh, surrounded me e everywhere. I was inundated with Hershey Bears for, for paraphernalia. I was like, man, I haven't been to a game in a while, but man, there's a lot of people who like Hershey Bears. And so while we were there at the stadium, of course, we were sitting down and in the first period, surprise, surprise, a fight broke out on the ice. And, and, and my wife was surprised because she's not a hockey fan, so she was like, do they act like this all the time at, like, hockey games? <laughs> and they were like, yeah, that's part of hockey. That's how hockey works, you know? And then what was interesting was, was the response that the fans had. So, so they're watching the fight happen, and I'm like, we done went from hockey to the main arena in Las Vegas. <laughs> and as they're fighting on ice, and finally the Hershey Bears player knocks the opposing player to the ice, the, the, the crowd just erupts in support that the fight has been won. We, we might say this was, this was some show of loyalty to the Hershey Bears. See, see, we all give our allegiance in one way or another to people, places, 
and things. And what we're going to do today is to look at the qualities that we believe that mark a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, if you attended our Discover Living Water class recently in the last year or so, uh, we've included now in the book something we introduced to the church a few years ago, which are the nine qualities of what we believe marks the life of a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. And you can see that uh, listed on the slide behind me. And so this year, as we open up this new year, 2024, our, our goal, our hope, our aspiration is, is that over the next nine weeks to unpack each one of these for what the Bible teaches about what it means to have these qualities in your life if you're a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. And this week, this week, we're just looking at the first one, which is a growing allegiance to Jesus. Now, to seek to aid us and maybe remember some things about allegiance, the way I've structured the message is to give us something for our heads, something for our hearts, and something for our hands. Something for our heads, something for our hearts, and something for our hands. Due to the time constraints, we'll only brief, briefly visit four texts today. Uh, we could preach a whole sermon on each one, but we'll kind of just briefly touch on each text today as it has something related to allegiance that we need to know. Uh, if we had some more time, we would do other texts as well. But I just want to focus on these main four uh, that we have before us. So let's get to the first thing. The first aspect of allegiance is something for our Heads. So I want to go I want you to go back with me to Luke chapter 14. You can stand for the reading of God's word on this text. Luke chapter 14, we'll be reading verses 26 through 33. Luke chapter 14, verses 26 through 33. And all of these are very familiar passages of scripture that you've heard before. Just want to bring out something as it relates to allegiance. I'll read aloud as you follow along silently in your Bibles. So this is Jesus speaking, and he says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it began to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. So uh, we know from other statements that the Lord made during his earthly ministry and from what God has said in the past, as I quoted one of the Ten Commandments, that uh, hate is not being used here in the sense of how we might think an enemy of ours or someone we might know would feel toward us. And hopefully no one here today is harboring hate in their heart toward another person. If you do, we would ask that you repent from that today and ask the Lord to free you from that. Hate, when you being used here in a comparative sense, communicates more the idea of choosing to give your allegiance to one person in preference to another person. Uh, in the case of the disciple, Jesus says, disciple must give him or her his loyalty to Jesus above all other important relationships 
in our lives. Now, now, this does not negate our responsibility to show love to these other people that we have just named because the scripture also commands us to show love to them. In addition, Jesus also expressed that our loyalty would go such to the point that it will supersede our desire or natural inclination to self-preservation if we're in a situation where we are forced to choose between our lives and being disloyal to him. Like those medication commercials that offer a great product and then give you all of the side effects at the end, I, I, I need to give you some side effects today. Following Jesus may include ridicule, ostracism, persecution, and yes, even death. We might refer to this as cross-bearing. See, allegiance to the Lord Jesus is required for discipleship. Notice in the text what he asked us to do. He says, I want you to do some math. I want you to do a cost-benefit analysis. Count the cost of what it means to follow him. So Pastor Mike and I, on occasion over the last few years, uh, as we've done our monthly uh, meetings that we do where Pastor Mike gives our check-in with us. Uh, he asks where we like to go to lunch, and many times I have selected Chipotle. Chick-fil-A is my other spot, so we kind of alternate between the two spots. And uh, so we, we've gone to, Chick, uh, to, to the Chipotle right over here on Union Deposit, and we often take the back road to get there. We don't jump on the highway. Uh, we go down this, I don't know if it's Pfeiffer's Lane or Pfeiffer's Lane because the F is not missing at the beginning. Anyway, uh, whichever pronunciation is correct. And uh, we noticed that uh, a year or so ago that they started building a new storage facility. And then on another time we passed by, uh, a few months later, they had stopped building. It just, it just halted. And we passed by uh, some time later, months had passed, and there was no advancement or movement on the project. And we began to wonder, did someone not plan well? And they had run out of finances because here was a building project that was started and yet not finished. Now, hopefully recently they've started to work on it again, so hopefully the financial revenue side got worked out and that will ultimately get completed at some point. But we all know exactly what this is like. Some of you in here work in the field of construction or you're contractors, and you know uh, the, the nature of being in a situation where if you get into a project and you've not calculated the cost or the time properly, that that can put you in a position that you don't want to be in. Perhaps you've done a DIY home renovation, and hopefully you counted the cost rightly because you know if you don't have the money to finish it, then you end up with a half-finished project. And nobody wants to have a bathroom in the house that they can't use. And people come over and it's like, yeah, that's the bathroom we didn't finish. <laughs> don't go in there. How long has it been there? Oh, six months or a year. We'll get to it at some point and finish it, you know. Or a kitchen. You can't even use a kitchen. You got to go down the street and buy your food from Wendy's because, you know, you, you, you have a kitchen that's finished. Or, or, you know, or perhaps a deck that you can't use, you know, when the summer comes and people come over and you want to entertain them. They're like, well, let's go outside. Well, we can't go outside. The deck's not finished, you know. Nobody wants an unfinished product. Some of you served or are currently serving in the military, and you know better than most of us how unwise or deleterious it is to go into war unprepared. You know the consequences of what that can cost. And it has this reason that Daryl Box sums it up when he says, discipleship requires that Jesus be given primary allegiance. Now, now, our allegiance to Jesus is not going to be perfect like his was to the Father, but it ought to be growing. 
as we come to understand what it means to follow him as we mature spiritually. See, tests like what Abraham faced in his life and trials like what James mentions that all believers will, come, will happen in their lives ultimately reveal where our loyalties lie. So we might ask, well, why should I give this kind of supreme allegiance to Jesus? And it has to do with the gospel message and what it claims about who Jesus is. See, the divine Son of God, the Word of God, who existed with the Father from all eternity past, humbled himself and took on the form of a servant. He took on human flesh. He who was rich became poor so that we might become rich. He fulfilled the promises to Abraham and to David. Jesus lived a sinless life and went about doing good, healing those who were oppressed by the devil. He died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried in a borrowed man's tomb. And then God raised him from the dead according to the scriptures. He was appeared to many witnesses alive. He ascended into heaven where he took the seat right next to God. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And those who are citizens of his kingdom, allegiance is the right response to a king who has loved us and gave himself to save us from our sins and who will return to rescue us from the wrath to, to, to come. Allegiance is the right response to the king of heaven. The second aspect of allegiance is something related to our hearts, something related to our hearts. For here, I want to go to a familiar passage in John chapter 14, verses 15 through 17. John chapter 14, verses 15 through 17. Here again, we find Jesus speaking, and he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. So here in this text, Jesus gives us two resources that help us in this journey of giving him allegiance or loyalty to him in an ongoing matter of life. The first is love. Love. Love for Jesus is ultimately what should be moving us to yield obedience to his commands. Because love, whether it's to Jesus or to someone else or to something else, ultimately influences the way we act in our lives. So in September of last year, um, the, the, the Lancaster Regional Police were called to uh, a local adult care facility, Legends of Lidditz. They were called there because there had been a theft. Uh, someone, and these two people may have been employees, had taken advantage of one of the people in the adult care facility, taken their credit card, and racked up some $12,340 worth of charges on the victim's card. The police found out who these two ladies were and ultimately they have been sentenced. And I was reminded of what the scripture says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Why, why did these two ladies take advantage of someone who was in a position of trust where they had trusted them and they took advantage of that because of their love for money and that led them to influence them in their actions of what they did. And we're no different. What you love, what you treasure will influence what you do. Knowing that humans need help because we cannot do this on our own, God provided us 
with divine aid. Notice what the text says. God gave us the Holy Spirit, which is the spirit of truth. Andreas Kostenberger, a New Testament scholar, has observed that in John's gospel, the word truth has a variety of shades of meaning. One of those, according to Dr. Kostenberger in 117 and 1416, is that truth function as relational fidelity. In other words, the Holy Spirit points people to Jesus. So in our journey of trying to be loyal to Jesus, we can't do it on our own. And so God has given us the Spirit who points us back to Jesus and helps us stay focused on Jesus. So the two things that Jesus says that we need to be uh, loyal to him or love for him, and you need the Holy Spirit to aid you in the journey so that you can remain loyal to Christ throughout life. So love and the Holy Spirit are necessary. The final aspect of allegiance is something for our hands, something for our hands. So you have two hands, a right and left hand, and in this case, there are two different aspects of allegiance that I want to, to bring out. The first is a text out of Matthew chapter 7. If you wouldn't mind, turn that with me. Matthew chapter 7, just three verses here, looking at verses 21 through verse 23. Matthew chapter 7, 21 through 23. Jesus, again, is the one who is speaking, and he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I don't know if this uh, passage has ever kept you up at night, but it's caused me to toss and turn on some nights. Because the Lord is speaking to people who have claimed allegiance to him. They call him Lord. They even offer evidence of their loyalty or allegiance to Jesus in the text. They perform some supernatural works or charismatic gifts. There was prophecy. There was exorcism. And the last part might even refer to they had done some supernatural healings. And I mean, who wouldn't want to do a few supernatural healings to lay your hands on somebody and see them made well? We would say by our estimations, they had had great ministries. And it would appear from the evidence that they offered that the case is closed. Why wouldn't they enter the kingdom of heaven? But Jesus evaluates things differently. He views them as workers of lawlessness. Something critical must be missing if Jesus said, despite the great ministries that they had, he didn't know them. What's going on? Jesus says that they did not do the will of the Father in heaven. Now, Scott McKnight holds that the primary people that Jesus has in view is not the person who's sitting out in the pew right now. It's the person standing up speaking to you. It's those who are in leadership positions that Jesus is focused on. Now, secondarily, we might apply it to yourselves. I wouldn't say miss that either. But he's talking about those who claim to represent God. In our modern-day context, that would be church elders, 
pastors, bishop, priests, etc., those who hold positions of leadership in various ecclesiastical structures. Now, unlike the false prophets in the preceding section of what Jesus talks about them who are acting as deceivers, these are disciples or would-be disciples who are self-deceived. Now, as I've shared on a past occasion, when I graduated from seminary, I was filled with ambition. Ambition that I thought was for God. I had planned to graduate from seminary. I was going to start a church. I even had a name for it. Had a whole file made out for it, all the stuff I was going to do in this church. Thought along to myself, you know, we were going to do some great ministry. And, uh, and in, in, in my ignorance, I, I thought, you know, maybe along the way we can cast out a demon or two. Maybe God will do a miracle or two along the way. And we're going to have a, a great time for God. Now, for those who've ever had to really deal with a demon, know how foolish it is to desire to run into a demon. If you've ever dealt with one, you, you, that's not a good idea. You don't want to be desiring that. that. That would be foolish. And if you are, you probably shouldn't be casting out demons. And I said it was all going to be for the glory of God as the crowds amassed. Now, I thank God that over the years what he has done is freed me from my ambition, which was really not for his glory, but for my own glory, so that I could be about his mission, which is the care of souls. See, it's easy to get focused on the wrong things. What, what you can make is your own personal desires, the focus of ministry, and ultimately end up missing doing God's will. And that's what happened here. In spite of all the great ministry they had done, they missed the boat. They did not do the will of the Father in heaven. So then we must ask, what then is the Father's will if it's not exorcisms and prophecy and healings, if that's not what the Father's after, then what is it? Amen. Thank you for your support. <laughs> amen. Amen. Well, this text comes at the end of the famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus has been explaining what the Father's will is in our relationships. He sums it up in the golden rule. You know this text. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law for this is the law and the prophets. What we discover is that relationships, how we handle them, matter greatly to God. Let me kind of review what, what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. He says that the true disciples of Jesus will judge other people rightly. They will trust God to meet their needs. And as Pastor Mark has already said in service, seek the kingdom of heaven first because your treasure is in heaven and not on earth. When you practice your spiritual disciplines, you'll do those for God and not to impress people. You'll pray for God's will to be done. You'll confess sin and you'll forgive others. You'll be generous to those who are in need. You'll love your enemies in practical ways. You'll keep your word to others and your commitments. With God's help, you will live by God's word instead of allowing your desires to guide you like anger and lust that ultimately end up just ruining relationships. You'll be a peacemaker. You'll be merciful to others and you'll recognize your spiritual Poverty. In light of this, Dr. McKnight notes how this word lawlessness is used in Matthew 24, 12, which then sums up really what these false prophets are missing. They have no mercy and no care for those who are in need. Yes, they're casting out demons, and yes, they may have been doing a miracle or two here or there in Jesus' name, and yet 
they don't have any care for anyone else. They did not heed the parable of the Good Samaritan. Gary Anderson observes that that's why in the first few centuries of the church, there was such an emphasis on a need to care for those who were poor. So on the one hand, allegiance to Jesus means doing the will of the Father which is in heaven, which means compassion and mercy towards those who are in need. On the other hand, allegiance to Jesus involves walking in righteousness and abstaining from sin. For this, I want to take us to 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10, which brings this idea to the fore for us. 1 John. Here, the beloved disciple, we believe, or, or another John, a pastor, may be writing, and this is what the apostle says. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for the seed of God abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever do not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. A very convicting text and a very difficult text to interpret. But we can make a few key surface observations about this text. Jesus dealt with sins. He took them away by his atoning sacrifice as is laid out in the context of this letter. Jesus himself is sinless. He has no sin. The devil is another story altogether. If we recall the events of Genesis and what happened in the garden and we realize that the serpent was either the devil or being used by the devil, then we know that he has been sinning since the beginning. In the words of Colin Cruz, the devil's work is essentially trying to undo God's work by turning people aside from doing God's will. That is, causing them to sin. At minimum, we can say that those who are in relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, have a new relationship with sin in their daily lives. We encountered similar thoughts in Galatians 5 and in Romans 8. Now, you might be asking, if you know 1 John well, how does this harmonize with what John says at the end of chapter 1 going into the beginning of chapter 2 where he talks about believers sinning and needing to have the advocate of Jesus in heaven and that we can go to him and ask for sin. And if you say that you don't sin, then you're a liar and you just sinned. So, so how do we pull these two together? Well, after reviewing the major scholarly interpretations, Dr. Cruz concludes that sinless perfection 
is not what's in view here in John, 1 John 3. See, those who are led by the Spirit of God, as Paul says, will actively seek to sin less on a daily basis, which is in keeping with Jesus' nature and the purpose of his atoning sacrifice. The sin instead, what he believes is being focused on here, is active rebellion against God, which the devil does. Those who belong to Jesus will not and cannot actively rebel against God in the same way that the devil is rebelling against God because God's spirit dwells in them. Instead, they seek to live lives of love, and they occasionally may sin because we're not Jesus. But we can confess to Jesus, and he will cleanse us. So what might living a life of allegiance look like? Well, in light of what I've shared with you, in light of what Jesus and his apostles have said to us, we must say that it includes forsaking sins in our lives. We cannot continue to make excuses and say, well, hey, God covered me. I'm just going to keep on sinning. That's not the heart of a disciple. You want to know what those sin lists are? They're listed in various places throughout the New Testament. Instead, what ought to be happening in each of our lives is there ought to be growth in the fruit of the Spirit of God. Second Peter chapter 1, Peter urges us in the same direction that Paul does when he says you ought to be growing in these qualities, and by that you make your calling and an election sure. Matthew Bates in his book on the topic of allegiance provides for us some helpful illustrations from other Christians' lives of how they're seeking to live out their allegiance to Jesus. We don't need to try to duplicate what they're doing, but what we do need to do is be led by the Spirit of God for the ways that he wants us to live out our allegiance to Christ. But here's some ways that others are living out their allegiance. He says, what would Jesus do? For the sake of others, he would leave his lofty station in heavenly glory alongside the Father, take on the humble posture of a human and do so even to the point of an embarrassing and excruciating death on a cross. In so doing, he would trust that God would see the action and exalt him at the proper time. Those who have embraced the gospel of Jesus the King are following this pattern of self-emptying today. And here's a few examples he gives from people that he knows. For over 10 years, a pastor friend with a young family has resisted the lure of a higher salary and prestige in the pastorate even though he is extraordinarily gifted. Choosing to serve at poor churches in a low economic area in the inner city that is racially tense environments rather than moving up to a comfortable suburban megachurch. And so doing, he and his family have accepted considerable hardship, but are quietly and yet powerfully living out the story of the crucified Messiah. Another friend has temporarily left her stable career in education for going a salary for several years in order to teach children of medical missionaries. Her, her fidelity to the Lord Jesus means using the gifts of her college degree and prior teaching experience to move downward in service to others. A different friend of mine works a full-time job in finance and serves also at his church as a lay pastor, including preaching at least once a month. He and his wife have four young children, and yet in the midst of this business, he and his wife delight every morning 
to get up and read the Word of God together. They spend an hour in the Word every day before work together because they view the Word as their daily bread, life-giving for them and for everyone that they're ministering to. Meanwhile, there's a family in our church that has recently taken in foster children in obedience to Jesus' instructions to provide special care to the poor and those in social distress. And I have a friend that I know who carries out his loyalty to Jesus the King each year by emptying his checking and savings and giving everything that his family has to charity, and they start over each year with zero. Now, perhaps you hear those stories and you're like, well, whoa, boy, that's some serious stuff there. And maybe you've wondered like the disciples wondered, well, Lord, if I sacrifice all that, what in the end is it going to be for me? And, you know, the disciples had that question. And here's what Jesus said to them. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for, the, and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. God will reward you for the sacrifices that you've made for his name's sake, and for the sake of the gospel. In closing, there's a book by the name of Known in which the authors Dick and Ruth Foth tell a poignant story about loyalty from uh, Edinburgh, Scotland. The story began in 1850 when John Gray moved to the city to take on a job as a gardener. He was unable to find work, as sometimes we are when we move to new cities, so he had to end up joining the police force, police force at that time and serving as a night watchman. And in order to keep him company to make it through those long night shifts, and some of you know what it's like to work night shifts and how difficult that, that can be, he brought along a pet, a Sky Terrier by the name of Bobby, on his rounds. And over the years, they kind of came a, a staple part of the living landscape as they served for night after night guarding the city. About eight years later, John contracted tuberculosis from which he passed away, and he was buried at Greyfriars Kirkyard. Now, Bobby, the Sky Terrier, would not leave his master's grave except for midday meals that people would offer him to feed this small dog who was guarding his master's grave site. He would be there at his master's side. The caretaker of the, the, the area tried to shoo away uh, this small dog to get him to leave the, the premises, but the dog always wandered back and stood by his master's grave. Finally, the caretaker gave up and decided and just built a shelter for the dog right next to the grave. When the city passed an ordinance that all unlicensed dogs would be uh, put down, the Lord Provost of Edinburgh, William Chambers, purchased a license for the dog, put a tag on his neck that was engraved in the collar. And for 14 years, the dog stood near his master's grave. Kind citizens would feed him. And now they've put a statue there, and on the bottom of it, it reads, Grave Fires Bobby died 14th January, 1872, aged 16 years. Let his loyalty and devotion be a lesson to us all. 
Our master has died for our sins, but different than Bobby's master, he lives again to God forever. Let us be found faithfully by his side. In conclusion, as an act of loyalty, since we pledge allegiance in the school, I thought it might be appropriate to end by all of us standing and reciting the Apostles' Creed together, and then we'll pray and we'll have our offering. So we'll begin. Let us read together out loud. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this confession. And we do pray, Lord, that you would help us to give our loyalty, our allegiance to Christ. May we grow in our loyalty and the demonstration of our acts as we embody that as we live out our daily decisions in life. We thank you for Christ's faithfulness to you, and may we be found faithful to him. Thank you for this opportunity to be able to give in one way, show our allegiance through that as we show honor to your great name, acknowledging that all the resources we receive have come for you. And we pray, Lord, that you would use it as we collectively give to serve your purposes in the world. We ask these things in Jesus' name.